Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf and I am your host. This is episode 4 of season 5 and it comes to you on July the 26th of 2020. Our guest today is nobody less than Peter J. Carroll and therefore also the name of today's episode, which is The Birth of Chaos. More about that later on. If you are returners to this show, welcome back. I'm glad to have you back. And if you have been with us, have not been with us previously, I'm wishing you a heartily welcome on this show. I hope you'll return often. If you need information about the show, you'll find that on our website, the website which is www.thothermes.com, that's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. On the website, you find all the information, all the episodes, past episodes, over 70 already. And you can also find all the show notes with more relevant information on our guests, on the subjects and books we talk about here. And if you want to give me feedback, and I really like feedback, that's also the possibility on the website. You just go there, you'll find a voicemail uh, possibility to send me a voicemail, but you also have a contact form where you can do just an ordinary message via the contact form. And of course, you can always send me an email on info at or use Facebook or Twitter where we are easy to be found. Talking about feedback today, I'm not doing this often, but today I would like to read you one of the feedbacks I got this week because it really made me happy and uh, I want to share that with you. It's, it's by a listener from Texas who does want to stay anonymous, so I respect that, of course, and he says, hello, I just wanted to take a moment to let you know I find your podcast to be informative and fantastically entertaining. I have for years been working alone in my esoteric and occult pursuits. There are not many others of like mind in the areas that I live in and move through. Your podcast has given voices to some of the authors I have read and introduced many others that I would have possibly never found on my own. I appreciate your direct and sincere delivery. You have a wonderful creation here. It makes a great resource for those of us that do not have a direct link to others within the culture with which to carry on these conversations. Thanks. Well, I say thanks to that listeners, and I'm really happy that some of you feel like that. Many of you feel like that, actually. I get regularly very nice feedback, but you are also, of course, open to send me criticism or ideas, anything that you want to talk to me about. Do let me know. Right. I have a couple of more things to tell you today. Um, one thing is that the Thoth Hermes Academy, which I have announced on the two previous episodes. I have 
move that three weeks later so it will now only start on august the 25th um which is also a sunday more about that this week but now really this week i had some problems on setting up the technical issues with the Hermes academy you will find more details on the website shortly and there is also some news already out there on facebook so have an eye open i think it will be interesting to those of you who like live events, who like to hear and discuss things with your favorite authors and occultists in person. So no more about that for the moment, but keep your eyes and ears open. And I would also like to tell you that I will be guest on a podcast myself next week. Well, tomorrow, actually, tomorrow, Monday, Monday, the 27th of July. But it will, as most podcasts, stay online, of course. It's on the Amish Inquisition that I will be invited and speak a bit about what I do here and about other parts of my life probably as well. I don't know yet the interview. We only do that today. So I hope it'll be interesting to those of you who want to know a bit more about yours truly, your host Rudolf here on the show. I'll post the link also on the relevant social media and the website, of course. Right. Last issue before we go to play some music. Um, well, you know what's coming. It's the request for patrons. Yes, actually, thank you, all of you who have already chosen to become a patron of this show. Your support is really helpful, really needed. And I announced that little challenge last week, and I'm now going to be more precise on that. Look, I took the average listener number that we have here each week over the last eight weeks which is exactly 2616 each week and that's really very nice because it's more than twice as many than we had a few months ago uh, so 2616 if four percent of you of you who listen to this show if four percent will become patrons i will stop advertising the patron uh, the patron subject. I will no longer talk about it here in the intro and we will also not put it on the website anymore. So 2,616, 4%, that is 104. I think that's a figure that can be reached. So there's the challenge. As soon as we have 104 patrons here, I will stop asking for patronage. So might be a nice challenge for you. Maybe you're up to it. Thank you. Okay, well, it's time for some music, don't you believe? Okay, and as you know, I always do music from friends and listeners here, where always, when I can, when I get the music. And I have received quite a number of music lately, and also today, two out of the three pieces that we are going to hear are from friends and listeners to this show. It's a Canadian group called Blight, Blight uh, and their new CD, Temple of Wounds. Uh, the sound that Blight shapes is, comes out of chaos and calamity, as they say, and it's uniquely their own grand choirs and fiery chants that pepper the band's powerful and dynamic approach to black metal, where claustrophobic, messing riffs threaten to suffocate. Percussive elements merge violence with technological prowess, and vocals are delivered with a cathartic intensity. Yes, you're going to hear all that. The group is from Canada, as I said, from Montreal. And 
one guy, the frontman, is Gabriel McCaffrey, who has already been a guest on this show. So he is somebody who some of you might know. And the first title that we are going to hear from this album, Temple of Wounds, by the Montreal black metal group Blight, is called A Violent Light. Enjoy. Sorry. 
Montreal-based black metal band Blight, who were founded in 2008 and who were performing for us a violent light from their latest CD, Temple of Wounds. The secrets of magic are universal and of such a practical physical nature as to defy simple explanation. Those beings who realize and practice such secrets are said to have achieved mastership. Masters will at various points in history inspire adepts to create magic, mystic, religious or even secular orders to bring others to mastership. Such orders have at certain times openly called themselves the Illuminati, at other times secrecy has seemed more prudent. The mysteries can only be preserved by constant revelation. In this, the IOT continues a tradition perhaps 7,000 years old, yet the order in the outer has no history, although it is constituted as a satrap of the Illuminati. In the order with no past, there is nowhere to conceal the future from the present. It takes its name from the gods of sex, eros and death, Thanatos. Apart from being humanity's two greatest obsessions and motivating forces, sex and death represents the positive and negative methods of attaining magical consciousness. Illumination refers to the inspiration, enlightenment and liberation resulting from success with these methods. The specific purpose for which the IoT is constituted is to help determining in what form the as-yet-embryonic fifth aeon will manifest. Its task, although historic, consists in disseminating magical knowledge to individuals. For at no time since the first aeon has humanity stood in such need of these abilities to see its way forward. There is no formal hierarchy in the Illuminates of Tanateros, there is a division of activity depending on ability as it develops. Students strengthen their magical will against the strongest possible adversary, their own minds. They explore the possibilities of changing themselves at will and explore their own occult abilities in dream and magical activity. Well, this is the beginning of a very, very famous book in the history of 20th century magic. It's the Liber Null and Psychonaut, and it's from the first chapter called The Order and the Quest. And this book was written, of course, by our guest today, Peter J. Carroll, Peter James Carroll. He is the co-founder of the Illuminates of Tanateros, which this book was just talking about. Of course, he is one of the def definers, I would say, uh, of the chaos magic movement. He was a co-founder of that group, Illuminates of Tanateros, and um, he certainly, to me and to many others, I believe, in the magical world and among practitioners, one of the great figures of the second half of the 20th century in regards to magic and the occult. And Peter J. Carroll, he has agreed to talk to me. Um, we had a very nice interview, which I'm going to present to you now. Uh, 
as always, it's in two parts. Uh, we have a little musical break after about 33, 34 minutes and carry on afterwards. And I have to apologize a little bit because the sound quality on his end is not always perfect. It's not what I always like it to be, but uh, never mind what he has to say is so interesting. And it's all perfectly understandable what he says. It's just not that fine audio that I uh, prefer to serve you here, but sometimes the internet lines just don't give what you need. And I was so happy that Peter had agreed to do that interview. So I hope you'll enjoy and uh, we meet again here in about 34 minutes with some more music. But for now, let's go and meet Peter J. Carroll. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure for me to have somebody very special tonight to here in front of the microphone of the Thoth Hermes podcast. One would almost say historical figure, a legend of the magical world. And it's Peter J. Carroll, Pete Carroll, who is with us here today. Pete, good evening. It's great to have you here. Good evening, Rudolf. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak. And well, as I just said, you're you're some very special figure for many people out there. And for the people of my age, they have lived through a period where you were at the center of attention in a lot of magical circles. And um, for the youngsters among the audience here, you are kind of a legend to who, who they look up to. And we would like to talk tonight uh, a bit about how that all started out how it all came together in the first place and then maybe have a kind of a portrait of peter j carroll here tonight um so pete um when you started in this world at first i think you of course you went to school and all that but at what age did you first come into contact with the magical world in the large sense or with experiences or, or um, contacts that made you think, hmm, there must be something else out there? Well, um, I had a few sort of psychic experiences of a kind or strange experiences in my late teens. Um, my my mother seemed to be able to communicate with me telepathically occasionally at stressful moments. Mm -hmm. um, I took to reading a few books on witchcraft from the, from the uh, public library. And um, I was, I, I think, particularly impressed by Paul Hewson's Mastering Witchcraft, uh, which was one of the first books that said, Yes, you can actually do this sort of thing if you want to. Okay. Or you can at least try to. Uh, and then I went up to uh, London University to study chemistry <laughs> and then <clears throat> found to my dismay that I wasn't going to learn any more chemistry than I'd already learned at school, at least nothing fundamental. I had kind of vaguely imagined that chemistry was about the nature of reality because you got taught atomic physics in chemistry before you got taught it in physics. 
Mm-hmm. The chemistry at uni turned out to be extremely dull. And um, it was in an era when most people's interest beyond their studies was usually either politics or, or something mystical. And um, I chose something mystical. And uh, <laughs> after a while, uh, I was reading Eliphas Levi. Uh, quite impressed me with his attempts to be scientific about esoteric matters, you know, trying to form theories of the astral light. Sure. Idea. Uh, and I eventually graduated to Crowley and um, reading the Golden Dawn material. There was a fa- fabulous amount of stuff coming into print in those days. Yes. Um, I think probably underlying every magical revival, there is a publishing revival. There was certainly a huge amount of stuff to read. And when you say this time, this was the late 60s, wasn't it? Uh, no, this would have been, uh, I would have gone up to the university in about um, early 70s. Early 70s, right. Yeah. In 71, I think I would have gone up there and um, stayed there for about four years. or stayed in London for about seven or eight years in the end. Uh, eventually met most of the London Illuminati, you know, Lionel Snell and Gerald Suster and mm-hmm. the people of that era. And uh, Atlantis Bookshop became a frequent uh, place to call and the old bookshop down Charing Cross Road. Of course. <laughs> and, um, you know, I graduated to sort of student flat and basement sorcery, trying out various experiments and things, and uh, got various groups of people together to do various things, and um, and, and gradually began to sort of form my own ideas about it. Uh, eventually, these ideas developed in, into what's come to be known as chaos magic, Although I didn't call my my first writings on the subject that, um, the name sort of grew upon a group of us who uh, were doing similar things. what do you call what do you call chaos magic a movement or a, or a, a direction of magic or or a, a teaching or what would be the label you'd give to chaos magic? Well, I think that quite early on, I realized that all these fantastically complicated symbolic systems and cabalas were probably pretty arbitrary, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the elaborate flowery symbolism that, that Crowley was um, heavily involved with all the Egyptology. I mean, that that's really window dressing, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's ultimately intention that counts. And the writings of Austin Spare were particularly influential to me. Um, discovered him early in my London period. Uh, we have to thank Kenneth Grant for bringing Austin Spare to public notice, really. Certainly. And, um, I mean, Austin Spare really stripped everything back to the basics. 
and um, is, although Austin's fair used to refer to Jung and Freud as junk and fraud, he was obviously quite heavily influenced by the idea of the mind has a strange hidden depths in it. And um, the model I began to work with was the idea that magic probably basically depends on activating the subconscious as much as the conscious. But probably the function of a great deal of the ritual and mumbo-jumbo is just to keep the conscious mind preoccupied while the subconscious uh, does the business. Right. And um, using that sort of principle as a basis, you, you, you could just dress up what you were doing in almost any kind of symbolism. I mean, Spare used a very basic idea. He just took the ordinary English alphabet uh, and, just, and just mangled it up as a method of communicating with his own subconscious. Um, it began to become apparent to me that nearly all rituals and spells depended on performing or enacting or imagining an analogy of what you wanted to, to achieve rather than what you wanted to achieve directly. Spurs' theory was that, you know, a conscious desire uh, will perhaps not be very effective or will only work after you've forgotten it. Mm -hmm. Whereas a desire you can, Im you can implant deeply in your subconscious uh, might well lead to immediate and powerful effects. Uh, he had a complicated system of doing this. Well, it was a relatively simple system, really, but it looks mm -hmm. a bit strange. Uh, but I use, I use that sort of model um, as the basis. And then taking that as the basis, you could, you could put almost any kind of ritual procedure on top of it, really. Okay. So when we eventually um, ended up doing rituals on the on a small scale and later on a bigger scale, you know, we often quite quite freely pinch symbols and ideas from all over the place from many different tra traditions. It, it became quite eclectic, really. Yeah. Um, and uh, I put these ideas into a book and then disappeared off to India. Uh, for some years in Australia, a couple of years. And Ray Sherwin up in uh, Lancashire had um, attempted to publish it, although I never saw more than a couple of copies. But when I got back, he and I republished it and sold the book via The Sorcerer's Apprentice. And, uh, you know, suddenly we had quite a lot of people interested and Ray and I formed a group up in Yorkshire, which was active for a year or two until I went off traveling again. And um, then when I came back from traveling, uh, I moved to Bristol, got another group together there. And after a while, I got a call from uh, Ralph Tegmeier in Germany mm -hmm. who wanted me to come over and... Uh, do some lecture tours with him. And we had quite a thing going for a few years until we fell out. Uh, 
lecture tours in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland sort of laid the foundations for, a, for an international order. Something I'd kind of intended, but I went over there and we, we had a, a pretty good s seminar. And he said, well, come back next year. So next year I came back with some ideas, a magical order for anybody who wanted, as it were, not just to do it, a, a week seminar, but you know, be part of something ongoing. Right. Took off from there, and then in succeeding years, we had quite a lot of people turn up. We had people from other countries, apart from uh, England and and the German-speaking world. We had people dropped in from America and other places, and and suddenly chaos magic temples seemed to be sprouting up everywhere. So it became an order almost, right? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people said, well, isn't the idea of a, an order of chaos something somewhat paradoxical? <laughs> you know, how, how can you have, you know, rules governing anarchy? Well, that's why I'm asking, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I did this really just so we'd have a... A structure, of, a, a structure with which we could assemble or communicate. Sure. Um, it worked well enough for some years. Um, we had a common terminology. Uh, part of the problem was was that um, the grades that we introduced were originally supposed to be. I think administrative, really. Like, mm -hmm. you know, a, a Magister Templi was supposed to be just someone who got a group together in their local area mm -hmm. um, and so on. But in the end, I think a certain amount of confusion and ambiguity uh, developed over, you know, has this person got this grade because they're a local or a section head or because or because they're a brilliant magician. Um, and, and some people who were appointed because they said they could, you know, administer a certain area or organize activities in a, in a certain series of cities or countries, um, you know, assume certain grades, but whether they're actually up to it in terms of magical ability, Mm -hmm. Whether they're merely just a, trying to administer something, I don't know. And of course, inevitably, people started playing for position. And um, yeah, it, did, it did lead to problems, but apparently, these are, are just a fact of life in any in any set of magic. It seems to be the fate of each group or, or, or movement yeah. in, in that field, doesn't it? Isn't that human, basically? Well, indeed, I think this is a problem. But um, yeah, it is. It worked well enough for a while. For, we had a good, we had a very good five years out of it, I'd say, basically, and then. Uh, you know, personal disputes over who was in charge of what or who should be in charge of what. Um, yeah, eventually led to internal dissent and um, yeah. factionalism, and um, it came to an end. But I think in, in, in those five years, it led to a huge amount of uh, dissemination of knowledge and ideas. And... Uh, 
I, I should think the people associated it, associated with it, or on the periphery of it, ended up writing between them probably about a hundred books on the subject. Definitely, definitely. And it's, it is still quite, it is still quite alive, at least as a as an idea and as a as a source of ideas for mm. other movements, maybe. And I mean, chaos magic is not something that we speak about as maze basically being the past, but rather something that's present in people's mind, isn't it? Yeah. Well, looking back, you know, I think in many ways, the first Chaos Magic book was not written by me, but it was written by McGregor Mathers. Which would be which book in the... Well, if you look at the whole... I, I think Mathers probably basically wrote virtually all the Golden Dawn stuff. Absolutely. Mm. Westcott did a bit, but I think basically it's Mathers' creation. Sure. And although he pretended to the secrets of antiquity and, and the secret chiefs, yeah, the whole thing is an amazing, multicultural, eclectic mashup. Definitely. It contains all kinds of different metaphysics. It contains bits from all over the world. But in those days, they had to maintain the pretense that they hadn't done that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to pretend that, that they had some, some line to some secret wisdom which they couldn't divulge. The hidden masters, you know. Whereas in Chaos Magic, we just said, yeah, we, we've worked out roughly what the principles of magic are, and the rest we're just putting together whatever we like from wherever we like because we like it. What what do you think? Do you think matters had to do that because it was the question of the late 19th century? You needed to do that because you were in kind of in a, in, a, in a competition with Blavatsky, etc. Or very much, yeah. Well, or were there other reasons, in your opinion, why they had to do that and why you could do it differently uh, almost well, almost hundred years later? Yeah. Well, I, I, perhaps a somewhat more ordered and authoritarian society in those days. Mm, Victorian days, yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps people didn't like the idea of just crazy creativity coming out of the blue. You know, <laughs> it had to have an extra human source or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, even... even Crowley didn't didn't really create his own system. No, yeah. Pinched very heavily from the Golden Dawn, and then uh, in with the uh, with the OTO, he was pinching very heavily from the whole Islamic corpus. Yeah. Um, but he always had to have, as it were, he was always hovering between. You know, I am the great beast, I am the supreme master, and I'm getting all this stuff from from amazing extraterrestrial or incredibly antique sources. Yes. We we almost try to steer a path between those things by saying, you know, we're we're just fairly good technicians of this sort of thing. I try not to present myself as a spiritual master. Um, you know, but more of a technical expert. Do, when you started to do to work as a as a scientist, I'm going back to your university days, right? Yeah, it was science that you were interested in. So, um, 
those the scientific approach that you had to to your work and maybe even to your life partly did this influence the way you approached then magic and the mystical side of your being then did this have an interference uh yeah pretty much so i mean people have described chaos magic as as results magic mm -hmm. um, and i always try to give almost any any ritual or practice i i organized you know for myself or anybody else some some kind of concrete aim not something merely done for mystical ecstasy but something mm -hmm. uh we should have a result in reality um getting yourself a job or a partner or or um dealing with an enemy or um Some some people call that just grubby sorcery. <laughs> yeah. So if you're doing magic just for mystical purposes, well, how can you be objective about whether it's working or not? True. True. Yeah. That that that's what some people then call high magic, right? <laughs> well, high magic. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, Austin Spear was very critical of that. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, and indeed, I'm a bit critical of that as well. I mean, if you look at all those people in the Golden Dawn, maybe they didn't do a lot of results magic because they were already posh and rich. <laughs> um, they didn't need to. I mean, arguably, Crowley never needed to do much results magic. Uh, he was the heir to a vast brewery fortune. He could buy anyone or anything he wanted. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and thus, he spent a lot of his uh, magical career was aimed at various forms of, or rather eccentric forms of self-development, perhaps. I mean, he, he did once, I believe, confide to Dion Fortune Magic is something we do to ourselves. Okay. Uh, in, in other words, it was ultimately a mystical self-development exercise. Um, I, I often tell you to promote the opposite view. Magic is something we do to the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, when people come came to my Arcanorium College or to any of my seminars or anything. Um, my attitude was, look, you know, pick up a wand and make something happen that you want to happen. Uh, I always taught enchantment first. Okay. Ask some spells. There must be something you want in life. You know, even if it's only a better job or, or more or less of something in your life you know there must, yeah. there must be some conditions of your life that you want to change and uh changing those will probably have at least as much effect as changing yourself hmm. yeah that's the sort of pragmatic and if you like objective approach i tended to take Would you say that chaos magic, as opposed to the other movements that you mentioned, is a democratic uh, way of magic? 
Well, it kind of uh, is democratic in the sense that anyone can pick up a book and try and do it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it will probably be remembered for. When Ralph and I set up the order, as it were, um, that was really to ensure that we get people coming back each year, you know, for, to do more things and uh, more fun, and also to spread the idea around and get people working together and developing the ideas. And that really did seem to require that we declare ourselves in charge of it. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I took the title of Supreme Magus or something like that. Yeah. Although we did have other people organizing, you know, the venues and things like that, but, you know, it seemed that it was difficult to get anything set up and moving without a certain amount of division of labor. Sure. And, um, and that leads to grades and titles immediately, doesn't well, it? That leads to grades and titles. Eventually, it leads to rivalry, magical battles, and fallouts, uh, <laughs> and all the other nonsense that always plague magical orders or even cricket clubs. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. You said your one of your strong influences was Austin Spare. You you said that, but. Um, if you had to name others, you mentioned Crowley, you mentioned Mathers. Um, yes, you, you read their books and everything, but would you say some of them or maybe others, others that we have not yet spoken about have really influenced your approach to magic and, and the mystical world? Let me think. Um, although I didn't like a lot about Alistair Crowley, um, One idea I think I, I got from him is his, and I'll put this in my early books, this idea that there are two ways of achieving an alternative form of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Gnosis in chaos magic. And the, the thing that um, I got from Crowley, not so much his symbolism or his great personality, But the idea that you could use both excitatory and inhibitory techniques okay. to, to achieve you know, a hyped-up state of, or an incredibly meditative state of consciousness uh, in which you could t attempt to do magical things. Yeah, so, I mean, he, uh, he famously said there are two methods of becoming God by mm -hmm. achieving, you know... A, a heightened state of, of, of magical power or awareness, the upright and the averse, let the mind become as a flame or as a pool of still water. Yeah. And um, the more I began to look at traditions all over the world, uh, you can see that, that these two things uh, feature very heavily, you know, either rituals and practices designed to cause extreme emotional arousal mm -hmm. it was designed to cause ex extreme mental quiescence I mean Crowley himself was 
was very fond of yogic practices and also wild ecstatic practices. And it wasn't long after I read that from Crowley, I, I started looking at one or two things in neurophysiology, particularly as I remember the work of William Sargent. Okay. Forgotten now, but he came to pretty much the same conclusion. I think he called them the adrenergic and the cholinergic states of of neurochemistry. Interesting. Never heard about him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yes, uh, I mean Crowley basically took a lot of the basic practices that Mathers had taught him in the Golden Dawn and added sex and drugs and goodness knows any other excess he could find uh, to sort of empower them. Um, I mean, we, in, in, in Chaos Magic, would often uh, artificially go wild. Um, we, would, uh, we would do circle dances in which the you know, instruction was to start dancing slowly and then just dance mad and frantically. Mm -hmm. Because if you do, it will put you into a different state of mind. You know, it didn't need any other uh, theoretical justification. I, mean, I, I personally am not fond of the effects of drugs because they lead to a loss of control. Yes. Um, but, uh, I mean, Crowley also, well, he's probably not the first person to introduce it, but the first person to write very extensively on it, introduced the idea of, of using sexual arousal. Yes. Ask spells or to put yourself into a, a sort of a rotocomatose lucid state for divination. Um, I mean, basically, all over the world, throughout history, throughout many cultures, you know, all the different methods of attaining a, an altered state of consciousness, in which I think along the, the Austin Spare lines, acts as an invocation of the subconscious, which yes. is the magically powerful part of the mind, um, you, can, you can use these ecstatic or quiescent states um, to activate the subconscious and dredge up things or dredge up perceptions you might not normally have made or possibly even do it, exert parapsychological powers. In most acts of gross parapsychology, you know. Sure, I mean, this seems to be a very ancient form of achieving that state. Uh, yeah. I mean, shamanism, old traditional shamanism, I mean, not, not the Sydney shamanism of today, um, is basically doing the same when you talk about dance or other ways of even drugs there, uh, of in, infusing another state of, of uh, consciousness. That, that's, that seems to be a rather ancient origin, don't you think so? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think if you look at the history of magic and in Europe, that kind of tended to get lost. You know, you had the sort of scholastic, scholastic kind of magic of the Middle Ages and the grimoires. Yeah. And apart from presumably, possibly frightening the practitioner, uh, 
going to a graveyard and doing sacrilegious things, apart, apart from fear and terror, it wasn't really making much use of the full spectrum of, of possible human responses. Um, it, had, it had perhaps become a bit academic and, and, over, and over-theoretical. Um, I mean, what people thought the witches were doing, whether they were doing them or not, and I know Ronald Hutton quite well, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably in most cases they weren't. But, um, the accusation of witchcraft was probably a, a far more common thing than witchcraft itself. Oh, certainly, yes. Yeah. But, you know, apart from the ecstatic rites attributed to witches, it, it's something which which perhaps until recent times had, had dropped out of magic in the Western perception of it. Um, I mean, certainly the Golden Dawn rituals seem to rather heavily depend on a lot of the old turgid medieval scholastic approach to it, you know, very verbose, yeah. very calm, dignified, and highly reali- ritualistic and often mystically inclined. I think Chaos Magic aimed to put the um, the ecstatic note back in, in into magic, following on from Crowley, but without getting into Crowleyanity or Crowley worship. <laughs> yeah. Which was, I mean, a number of people have said to me, said to me, you know, in Chaos Magic, we're basically defining ourselves partly by defining ourselves against Telema. Okay. In, in the way that, you know, the, the modern witches partly define themselves by defining themselves as against Christianity. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think in some, in some ways Chaos Magic defined itself and differentiated itself back in the 70s and 80s by being very non-telemic. I mean, I remember, you know, back in the days of the London Illuminati and, and the great wave of, of the occult revival that was occurring in those days, uh, eventually it seemed to settle out into two camps in uh, in the UK at least. You know, there was the hardcore telemites and then there was the, um, the chaoists, and, and they were like, as it were, you know, the Athenians and the Spartans fighting over the, the same things. <laughs> um, we, we were at each other's throats because we were so similar in a way. Yeah. We just didn't accept some of the central tenets of, um, of Crowleyanity. Well... I don't think I exaggerate when I say that Pete Carroll is one of those living legends of the magical history in the 20th century and 21st, of course, because he's still around and rather active as we heard and we'll hear later on. And I'm 
honestly rather proud that we have regularly people on here uh, who are part of that magical history and who are that kind of historical historical figures. I don't don't want to give you names. Maybe just one. If you think about Dolores Ashcroft Novitsky, who was here about two years ago, she really is a living legend now, over ninety years old and still around and buzzing. And there are many others who I consider the likes uh, like Pete and uh, Dolores and who have been on the show who have given interviews to our pleasure here. And it makes me happy that this is all possible. And this is possible also, not only thanks to those great people who agreed to talk to me and that I'm very grateful to all of them, but also to you, the audience, because you listen and without you, such a podcast would not be able to exist and continue to exist. But now it's time for some music again. And now here in this interview break, we play some organ music. Well, that's new, isn't it? It's some really incredible piece by a French composer called Louis Vierne, who lived from 1870 to 1937. He was from 1900 onwards also the titulaire, as they called it, so the main organist in the great Notre Dame de Paris Cathedral. And I believe it's also there where this piece that we were, we're here now was recorded, of course, not played by him, but by someone else. But it's a piece called Fantôme. So I don't think I need to translate that. It's the same in French, English and German and many other languages. Uh, Phantom. So... It's a extremely strong, creepy, amazing piece of organ music. And I thought it fits so well in an occult podcast. So I hope you'll enjoy just as much as me when we listen to Louis Vierne's piece, Fantôme.
Fantôme by French composer Louis Vierne, who lived from 1870 to 1937. And I think that this is one of the most incredible pieces of organ music, at least of those that I know. And I always like to hear it, and I think it fits very well into our show. Right, let's return now to talk to Peter J. Carroll. I kind of interrupted him a few minutes ago, and we will carry on with that question about that rivalry between the OTO and the IOT, and all that came later on. Um, listen to him, because this is a first-hand account of his side of the point of view that he had, how all this history also developed in the second half of the 20th century, well, especially in the 1990s. And it's really interesting to hear that from his point of view. Right, as you know, at the end of the interview, we will hear another and third piece of music. And this time, of course, it's back to Blight, to that Canadian group who gave us two pieces to listen to today. Again, it's from their CD, Temple of Wounds. And the second piece that will come directly after the end of the interview is called Elsewhere and Elsewhen. But for now, we go back to England, to the English coast, and we will meet Peter J. Carroll again. Aren't the fights between groups who are rather similar much more fierce than the fights between groups that have nothing in common? Yes, indeed. I think that's very much the case. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the recruits to Chaos Magic, including Ray Sherwin, you know, had started their career as Telemites. Mm -hmm. uh, and I understand that at one point, uh, the OTO said, right, we don't want to see any more of this, any more of these chaos-type rituals being done in any of our temples. It's forbidden. <laughs> but is that not because at the time the Telemites or the, the whole Crowley OTO movement was the modern way of doing it? I mean, the Golden Dawn had passed, all the other ceremonial magical things looked like old-fashioned to the young generation. We, we're talking yeah. about basically the, the 70s, which are the kind of outbreak in all over the place. And then suddenly there is chaos magic and the, the, the young groups moved on from, from Thelema to to, to to chaos, or would you see that differently? But yeah, we certainly we certainly did get a lot of people who had been really committed telemites mm. go for the more eclectic chaos approach and the more free form chaos approach. Yeah, um, I think there's a bit of a problem with the deification of Crowley. I mean, most hardline telemites that I've known over the years seem to be very much into the personality cult of Crowley. And mm. Crowley went to considerable lengths to make sure he had a personality cult. Sure. Um, but as uh, Gerald York, who, who actually knew him, said to Gerald's sister, who's now deceased, but uh, Gerald's sister went to see Gerald York and... Um, Gerald York said, I don't know why all you young people are so interested in Crowley. He said, if you'd met him, you wouldn't have liked him. <laughs> I mean, my assessment of Crowley was that, you know, he was basically a, a bullish bully of a bloke 
If he met you, he would have wanted your wallet, your wallet, your worship, your girlfriend, and your backside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was not somebody I would have actually liked to have hung around with. Probably not, yeah. The only two, the only two options were either you worshipped him and you and you treated him in the way he thought he ought to be treated as as some great god of magic or you know you're going to fall out with him very radically i think definitely definitely i, I think i would have fallen out with him very radically yeah how do you spell chaos magic with a ck or just with the c uh it's been a bit variable over the years right but but about you you yourself Oh, I, I normally tend to write it with just a C. Yeah. Um, Why? Why? Well, Crowleyan's spelling of magic with a K did serve to make it look a bit more sparky and modern. Mm -hmm. And so some people... You used to spell chaos magic with a K, possibly for that reason. But, you know, then people would say, oh, yeah, so you're into Alice Crowley then. And we would say, mm, only bits of it. You know? So, um, yeah, we tended not to do that. I think right. the K does seem to be dropping away gradually. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely, definitely. There is another person, a great person that I think you have had quite a lot to do with, if, if I'm not wrong, um, and that's Robert Anton Wilson. Um, I think uh, at some point, mm. Chaos Magic and him and you as a person, I think you you did quite an, uh, a collaboration. Or uh, can you say something about that time? Yeah, well. I only met him for two evenings. Oh, really? Mm. When I was doing some lectures to the, um, the Chaos Magic Temple that somebody had set up in um, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. and, um, and also with when I went to see and lectured to Laura Jennings' um, Golden Dawn Temple, Laura Jennings actually knew him personally. So she provided an introduction, and I went around there for an evening, and then later, uh, a year mm -hmm. for another evening. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he was a fascinating bloke. Um, I'm sure, yeah. He, uh, he had a tremendous capacity for sucking, he had a mind like a jet engine, you know, he would, he was sucking ideas, accelerate them with the fuel of his own erudition and enthusiasm, and blast them out the back. Okay. Going faster and faster all the time. Um, it was almost manic. Um, yeah, I did. I, I did find him extremely amusing, and I read everything he ever wrote. I think. Um, mm -hmm. I think, uh, and indeed, after I'd retired, the head of the American section of, of the IOT actually actually got Bob to join the IOT in some capacity or another. And mm -hmm. Leary and... Um, yeah, Leary, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and that other chap. I, I don't know how much 
it, whether we ever put in much temple. Oh, and William Burroughs as well. William yeah. Burroughs apparently put in a few appearances in the American Temple. Um, I'm not sure that Leary or, or Wilson did. They may have participated in some of the stuff, but I, I, I'd taken early retirement by then. But yeah, I, I always, I always loved Bob's style. Um, I mean, but he was um, a kleptomaniac for ideas. You know, he um, he just got stuff from everywhere. I don't know how much of it he ever remembered. Or, then he would just move on to something else. But okay. he certainly had a voracious uh, appetite for, for cutting-edge ideas. Uh, I, I liked his eclecticism and his, and his whole manner. It was funny to meet a bloke of that age because I thought, well, in a way, that's the kind of dad I wish I'd had. You know, my own father was a rather... Uh, rather more pedestrian, quieter figure, mm-hmm. interesting ideas. And here was a guy of almost my father's age who was, who was just a volcano of ideas. <laughs> yeah, I knew it was You were just talking about your retirement. So maybe let's go back to that because, well, you mentioned the books, the early books. So everybody here hopefully knows it's Lieber Null and Psychonaut and and, uh, um, uh, all the early works of your Lieber Chaos. Um, But then you, I think for some, you quite suddenly retired. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? When that happened and and what motivated you to, to go that path? Yeah, well, there was quite a number of things, really. Um, basically, the, the other guy who, who was effectively fronting the international organization with me, Ralph, mm-hmm. He developed an interest in in this ice magic. And, yes. Um, I really didn't want to go down that route, and I felt that he was taking members away from the IoT and trying to induct them into that. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of suspicions about where this was going. I, it, it all seemed to me to be very much against the spirit of what we'd set up. And uh, it seemed to have an un- unpleasant, unpleasantly authoritarian and cultish tones about it. Mm-hmm. Quite a confrontation about this. And um, as a result of about a year's wrangling and disputes and magical wars, eventually Ralph um, was no longer part of the IoT. Mm-hmm. And the structure in Europe was somewhat damaged because of the dispute. And uh, so I went back for one last, slightly smaller, big annual general meeting in in one of the castles we used to hire for this. Mm -hmm. um, We had a thoroughly good time. Was that that castle in Austria over here? In, in uh, yeah, I think that was um, the Lockenhaus. Lockenhaus, yeah. It's about 50 kilometers from where we where I sit doing this interview. All oh, right. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of, basically, after that, I just said to the guys, right, well, it's your order now. Um, 
I've given you everything I can possibly do. It, it's, it's been a huge effort to try and come here with a whole heap of new material every year. Mm-hmm. It, it's up to you younger guys, though, mostly younger than me, uh, and girls to uh, to carry it on. I said, I've got lots of other things I've got to do in life. I've got, I've got young kids now. I've got a business which is... Um, looking like it might finally start to go somewhere. I've got to, I've got to devote my time to family and business. Right. I'm just right. keep giving a huge chunk of my year to this. Cause it wasn't just a two weeks, uh, doing the annual meeting. It was months of preparation. Right. Sure. Sure. And, um, I thought, well, is it, either I become a, a full-time professional wizard, which I don't really want to do because I don't want to make, my living out of this because if I do, I have to make all kinds of compromises. You know, I'll mm-hmm. be playing to the gallery. I'll be doing what they want rather than what I want. Doing what sells rather than what I think is right. You know, it's not mm-hmm. here to make a try to make a living out of being um, the leader of a magical order, in my view. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I get you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I said, right. You know, it's it's either my family and my business or that. Um, so I, I basically chose my family and my business. Sure. Sure. But um, what year are we talking about here? I think that would have been about mid nineties. Mid nineties. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, you have not disappeared from the magical stage, so to speak. Mm. Um, uh, for those of you who look a bit um, further on the internet and the internet today, of course, is something quite different from what it used to be in the early days of Chaos Magic. Yeah. Um, um, they find you... There's a term that, that jumped at my eyes when I researched for this interview, uh, which is called rebel physics. Yeah. Subtitle of your, uh, your website today, specularium.org. Um, I will post all those links also in the show notes, of course. But what what is rebel physics? What's your what's your what's that term for you? What does it mean? Well, uh, I think was it the philosopher Thomas Vaughan said something like, you know, a revolutionary is a rebel in politics, and a witch is a rebel in physics. Okay. In, in other words, if you think you can do magic then you're, you're rebelling against the standard theory of how the universe works. Sure. And uh, <clears throat> what I've actually been concentrating a lot on in, in the last decade or two is, is looking at um, the science of cosmology and the science of quantum physics. Uh to see if there's anything there which which gels with my experience of magic. I mean, Lionel Snow, Ramsey Dukes, he said that um, pseudoscience has become the language of choice for magical thinking. I really like to make that more rigorous, you know, mm-hmm to understand how magic really works. Um, I tend to view magic as one end of a spectrum, the end of the spectrum where things are not easily repeatable, 
and maybe not easily quantifiable. Science has picked the other end of the spectrum. They went for all the easy stuff that's repeatable and dependable <laughs> and easily reducible to mathematics. But in many ways, science has, has taken over many things that we, initially, we used to think of as magical. It's managed to understand them. And I wonder if that understanding can, can be extended from both directions. Mm -hmm. can, can, we under, can we understand how how parapsychology and, and things like that work in, in naturally. Um, do we indeed need to go back to uh, what you might call natural philosophy? Yeah. Which was originally trying to find out how the universe works by means. Absolutely. Um, don't just go for the easy, repeatable stuff like apples falling to the ground. Look at why sometimes they teleport upwards. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, I've recently had on this show Dean Radin, I don't know, oh, yeah. uh, Institute of Noetic Sciences. And mm. um, is the approach that you take comparable to what the noetic sciences do, or is it different? Well, I'm not very fond of parapsychology experiments. Right. Um, they're usually set up in a way which is extremely anti-magical. You know, they're, they're challenging it to fail. They're making it as difficult as possible. Okay. I would advise anybody interested in magic never to go near a parapsychology experiment because it's been heavily set up to fail anyway. And if it works, you'll end up working behind barbed wire. Interesting. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? Because I've never heard it like that. But as you say, it um, it rings a bell. But maybe you can can go a bit further in that. Well, when um, you know, academic institutes set up parapsychology experiments, they basically set them up in such a way as to make not so much to prevent cheating, but they're doing everything um, to make it difficult for the person to do it. Mm -hmm. and they're, they're, they're demanding it's being done in a, a controlled, calm fashion, and that what is done is usually extremely boring and not emotionally engaging. Uh, I mean, typically what happens with, with even Zenicard guessing is that the participant may do pretty well for the first half dozen guessing guesses, well above chance. But of course, that's just a statistical fluke. Sure. It gets hopeless as they carry on because it's extremely boring. And their mind's already been filled up with the four or five images dozens of times. Yeah. You couldn't really expect them to get very far with it. Uh, it would perhaps be far more interesting to take a large group of people and just do it once with everybody. Okay. I think you'd probably get uh, a result which was way over chance, but that wouldn't be statistically acceptable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> and there's also the problem, you know, that if anybody ever did turn up and managed to... Uh, a convincing display of parapsychology laws will get passed about it of which burning trials again 
women talking to the government or um, terrible things like that, you know, we would end up working behind barbed wire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I would like to talk to you a, bit, a little bit about the Arcanorium College, which is, yeah. uh, you say a bit about, about it. I very much like the, I think it's the motto almost, you can say, interroga omnia, question all things, which in my opinion should be the the, the, the baseline to for each magician, each p- person who works in the occult and the esoteric worlds uh, as a principle and is rather, uh, rather too little, little used that, that, that motto, that advice. Um, but tell us a bit more about Arcanorium College. Well, Arcanorium College grew out of a thing I did with um, some friends and relatives of Robert Anton Wilson. They set up the Maybe Logic Academy. Mm-hmm. When Bob got pretty old and ill and needed some funds for his health care, they put on these sort of series of lecture courses and invited people to do them. And I was three, and I had, you know, a huge number of participants. The internet, internet forums and things were relatively new in those days. And it was tremendously exciting, and we had a lot of fun with it. And when it was... When I'd done these three courses, a lot of the participants said, well, can we keep this going, Pete? So I said, well, okay, we'll try. So we set up our own forum called Arcanorium College. And for about six or seven years, it worked, I think, supremely well. I mean, it inspired me to write those two books, the Apophenian and the Octavo. And we had quite a lot of participants and... About eight or nine people acted as tutors, fairly well-known people in their fields, and I did some tutoring on it, and we would get people onto the college. It was just a small subscription to maintain the site, but at least the subscription kept nutcases away. You know, we, we only got people who were actually prepared to pay, yeah. join it, and take yeah. it seriously. And it, and it worked very well. It was very productive, and we ran a, a wide range of courses six or seven years but in the end it began to suffer from what I call internetitis you know I noticed that people's attention spans was getting shorter and shorter okay want to embark on any course of action that was going to take them more than 10 minutes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. years we could send people away with work to do and report on it and uh discuss their findings and and chat and everything. But in the, in the end, people were just wanting something new every other day. A problem of our time, isn't it? Yeah, they were wanting continual novelty, which I just couldn't produce at, at a sufficient rate. And they were just wanting continual novelty, continual variety, and they weren't repaying mm-hmm. with, their, with their prolonged attention or effort. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. What I did in the end... Well, in the end, it was only a year or so ago. I said, right, you know, all those people who want to study my course, The Bachelor of Magic, can just do it with me by email. And I've got about a dozen of them who are working through it. And they didn't talk to each other. They just talked to me about the progress mm-hmm. and magic in general. And then I've got a couple of physicists who, whilst they don't officially consider themselves part of the college. Um, 
I think they were attracted to the idea of corresponding with me because I offered myself, you know, in that way. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of physicists who uh, I, I discuss a lot of matters with quite separate to the magic. So I, I basically moderate both departments, but it, I only do it by email. We don't have a site anymore. Right, but it's still up and running or...? or... No, the, the site is, is no longer running. Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Basically, on my, my personal website, Specularium, yeah. it's just basically the Mark and Orion College are, yeah. are, constitute an offer by me to correspond. Right. With the magicians, I'm prepared to um, moderate their progress through, through a course. Mm-hmm. Physicists, I just want people to, to discuss with us as peers. So, um, yeah, I have quite a lot of email traffic every day on both subjects. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, you, you kind of spread a lot around the world. I mean, we were talking, your initiation came from Great Britain, then it moved into the German-speaking world and sundry other countries. Then we had that Los Angeles, Californian branch, so to speak, of the temple. But there was also an Australian part of Templum Nigri Solis, right? Was that also a chaos magic department, so to speak? I think they were pretty autonomous. I I had a, a whole heaps of communication with them over the years, but I'm not quite. I never met them. I'm not. All right. Who they were? I I think like a lot of groups, you know, they, they were using the ideas. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't have probably considered themselves part of the structure. Uh, yeah. I must say, I don't know how much international structure there is left to the IOT. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, because there's so much material has been written and put in the public domain, that they don't actually teach things very actively anymore. They come together for rituals and things and communicate with each other and you know, regional social events, but... I don't, I don't really know how extensive it is. Um, I haven't got the time to attend their events anymore. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. I think, I think they still do have a couple of big meetings each year. Uh, but but that leads me that leads me to my next question because I was going to ask you. Well, we were talking about Pete Carroll in the in in the past, so to speak, and in, in the in, in the closer past. But where where do you stand in regards to magic today? Also personally, uh, um, are you still active as a as a person, and are you still? Maybe preparing a new book or a role. Yeah, um, what are you up to? Well, I'm, I've been very lucky in life. You know, I've, I've achieved just about everything I wanted to in terms of, of wealth and comfort. You know, I, I don't. I've retired from my my, my business activities, mm-hmm. um, and there's not much I want really. Uh, I have everything I need, so. I'm I'm basically pursuing knowledge. Um, I am attempting to write something which I may call the Occultaris. Okay. Which will be an attempt to find common ground between physics and magic, to put it bluntly. 
right. It will involve um, some rather eccentric interpretations of both cosmology and particle and quantum physics. Uh, and perhaps a slightly different take on what most people regard magic as, but I can't help thinking that a complete understanding of the universe will have to involve both sides of the coin. Sure. Um, I'm just trying to find out what both sides of the coin have in common at the moment. Um, I've pursued a cosmology project uh, for quite a long time, and I think that has a, a lot of interesting magical consequences. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking into the whole kind of quantum and particle physics thing at the moment. I'm beginning to to see where this where this might lead in in terms of a of a theory which reconciles the two, or at least shows the overlap or co dominion of the two, and 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 may explain quite a lot of things and make and make a number of unusual predictions in various different fields. It's call my site specularium because it, it is all speculation. Which does need rigorous checking with the maths and the observations, but um, I may die trying. But I am basically trying to come up with a theory of everything. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's really what I'm devoting my retirement to. Well, that, that's nice. And any any idea, outlook, when we could hope for it or could expect the result of 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 that as a book. I mean, I don't know. Maybe a couple of years. See, right. Yeah. Right. But your your Octava and Epoch, the later books that you wrote, and I think the third is called the uh, Apophenian, right? Mm. And, uh, to, um, th those are still available and around and can be can be found, right? Oh yeah, they're still all available. Those who are available from Mandrake. Right. 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 The the cyber magic which I I wrote and which um, original Falcon Press produced. That's uh, a very small book, mm -hmm. a bit like Crowley's Book of Lies. Right. It, um, I kind of wrote that just after I retired, and it was um, it was a bit of um, an anathema of Zoss moment for me. Um, it was a bit of. Uh, it was slightly tongue-in-cheek. It was slightly crazy. Uh, it it kind of lay... It, it's got a lot of rather wild ideas in it. I was still picking over. It's, it's, a, it's a book that sells the least of all three. It may be the one that contains the germs of what reappear in this thing, the Occultaris, that I'm working on. It was just basically a, a series of mad notes scribbled, really. <laughs> okay. Uh, in a hurry. I don't know why. I just felt I had to just bash it off. <laughs> I wrote it in a rather strange state of mind to the accompaniment of thunderous rock music. Yeah. <laughs> me. Normally I, I write in, in complete silence, not even looking out the window. But yeah, that, that book was written in a rather peculiar state of mind. But um, I am perhaps going to be revisiting some of the themes in it. Mm -hmm.
Well, that that one has not um, <clears throat> proved massively popular, but the Athenian um, and the Octavo, yeah, they 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 continue to do pretty well. Good, good. I never cease to be surprised at the at basically Liber Null. Um, that's I think one way or another, it must have sold a hundred thousand copies. Wow. Wow, well, that's in, that's in, in that kind in of quite a few languages, yeah, yeah, that's great, yeah. But uh, yeah, well, um, I I'm afraid we are slowly approaching the end of the time that we we have. But I have one final question because I found a quote of you in an interview you gave, a written interview you gave. Uh, a few years ago, I think. Um, I just wondered, I, I find it, it, it links nicely to what you said about your future project. I think you, you were talking here about quantum physics and uh, you said there is no being, all is doing, and even that is a matter of probability. Uh, <laughs> could, yeah. you, could you maybe to close and round up our talk, um, expand a little bit on that? Well, uh, at the root of what I'm trying to do at the moment is, is the idea that time, we don't quite get, get what's really going on with time. Um, Sir Roger Penrose, in his Road to Reality, said that he wondered if we have made some misconceptions about the nature of time and that mm. we may need to revise those. I have, for a while, I've nurtured this peculiar idea, which came initially from my experiences with occult phenomena, but which is increasingly, to me, becoming a tool for explaining particle physics that time actually has the same dimensionality as space. It's three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. um, you might immediately say, well, <clears throat> it doesn't look like it, does it, Pete? To which I would say, well, what does time look like anyway? We can't, we can't even see time. We can only infer its existence by effort of memory or expectation. Um, we don't even measure time with a watch. A watch merely measures entropy. And as Stephen Hawking says, you know, entropy increases with time because we measure time in the direction in which entropy increases. I think time actually goes sideways as well as, as it were, forward. Mm -hmm. See any of this. But probability lies at right angles to time. And I've, I've got an explanation for quantum superposition based on, on sideways time, if you like. Okay. I think I've got an explanation for the existence of fundamental particles and their behavior in terms of sideways time or time being solid rather than just a linear a wonderful thing um it's all kind of gradually coming together uh i've got 
a collaboration going with the geometric algebraist who's helping me out with this, but I think it's just possible we, we might pull something together which explains not only probability and uh, quantum superposition and entanglement, but also many of the parapsychological phenomena of magic as well. So, yeah, probability lies at right angles to time. That's what I'm working on. Well, sounds really exciting. And you gave us, for the end of this interview, uh, a lot of things to think about, I, uh, I think, and to to look forward also to with your new work and new book. Well, Pete, thank you so much for spending this hour, 10 minutes with us. It was yeah, great. Yeah, thanks for your questions. No, thank you. And then, well, good luck with your new project and all that you would like to achieve in the next years. And thank you for being with us here today. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye now. Good evening. Bye.
Montreal-based black metal group Blight with another track from their new CD, Temple of Wounds, Elsewhere and Elsewhen. And thank you to Blight and especially to Gabriel McCoffrey who offered us those two tracks to present to you here in the show today. And big thanks also, of course, to Peter J. Carroll. It was great to have him on the show, and I hope you all enjoyed that interview in spite of the slightly worse technical condition of the sound quality uh, uh, than I normally like to do. But I think it was really worth doing it like that. Great. Well, um, thanks for listening, guys. That was great to have you here. And I always enjoy doing this show for you. And of course, it's wonderful when I get your feedback. As I said, please give me your feedback. I really like that. So what's up next week? Next week, there is episode five of this uh, season five already. Isn't time flying? It's amazing. And our guest on next week's show is an academic. And I'm not sure if this is a first on this show, but in any case, uh, you'll get more of that also later on in this season. And uh, next week, we are going to meet a professor of religious studies at University of Gothenburg in Sweden. And I'm sure most of you know his name. It's Hendrik Bogdan. Hendrik Bogdan, who is going to talk to me. And I can promise you as much. It's going to be really highly interesting what he has to say. He is talking about alternative forms and new alternative forms of religion, but also uh, Western esotericism, of course, and that's the main subject of our talk and the relationship between that, between new religious movements and and why it's good to keep maybe this academic issue of the Western esoteric um, uh, movement within uh, the faculty of religious science, etc. So we discuss all this. It's really highly interesting. And he, he knows so much and he tells us really a lot in that interview. So don't miss that next Sunday. Okay. Well, once again, thanks for being with me here today. It was great and a pleasure to have you. Once again, also the reminder, watch out for the Thought Thermos Academy to be now clearly announced and with the correct new dates later this week. And, um, well, have a good week. Uh, meet you again next week. And for today, I say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.